Well, good morning. We're in the midst of a sermon series focused on the question, what does it mean for our church to be faithful to God and faithful to our neighbors in this particular moment of time? And so we're exploring six foundational practices that have always been true of the church throughout time and place, whenever the church has found itself in a culture where the church is the minority. So think about this astonishing kind of description for just a moment. For a thousand years here in the West, the institutions of government and education businesses, the arts, the social sector, whatever qualified as media throughout the centuries. For a thousand years, all of these institutions instilled in everybody who lived in the West, they instilled a basic set of beliefs about morality and sex and God and sin and the afterlife. So as a result, for a thousand years in the West, if a non-Christian showed up at a church, they heard nothing that was offensive or surprising. They heard what they had been learning. They heard the, they heard the same thing that had been expressed in the basic um, backdrop of the air they breathed. It was in the architecture, it was in the art, it was in businesses, government, education, all of that. It's not like that now. The values and ideas and beliefs that shape our city, some of them are Christian, but many of them are not. They're different. They're different values than Christian values. It's a different vision than the Christian vision. It's different beliefs and it's, it's different ideas. Our city today in all of its spheres, its education system, whether you're talking about public school or universities, the business community, the social sector, the arts, government, media, our city is a strange mixture of some Christianity and a lot of secularism. And the Christian vision is no longer the predominant vision. We don't run the city. And that's okay. That's okay. There is nothing the church has to be afraid of in this moment. We are living in a moment where, yes, there are challenges and we're having to ask some deeper questions that we didn't have to ask when things were a little more comfortable. But now as we see that our values and our ideas and our beliefs are being challenged, we're being forced to reconsider what does faithfulness look like when you don't have access to the thermostat? What does faithfulness to God look like when you are not the majority? When your beliefs aren't the beliefs? What does faithfulness to God and to our neighbor look like when we are no longer the establishment community, but we are 
a minority and oftentimes a despised minority. So today we're going to talk about a fifth practice that the church has used when it's in this position. The position of not being the majority, not being the establishment, but being a missionary minority community within a culture that has different values and visions and beliefs. The fifth practice that we're looking at today is the practice, a practice the church has always been good at when it's a missionary community. It's the practice of extending hospitality. This is something the church down through the ages, when it is the minority people, this is something that the church down through the ages in those moments has been really good at. The church gets better at hospitality when the church becomes the minority. Think about the first century church. We could go back to Acts chapter two, right? Where we see the church first emerging. This is something that the church was, was brilliant at. It was something that the church was creative about, welcoming strangers, nurturing friendships, building community. The church, when it's adopted the posture of being a missionary community, has been a place in society where people come and seek rest when they are restless. It's been a place where people seek welcome when they feel left out from any other place. Is that the church's reputation in America today? Are we the place where people look when they are weary, when they're in need, when they're seeking acceptance because they've received rejection elsewhere. I think if we're being honest, we know that that is not necessarily the, church's, the church in America. It's not necessarily our reputation. And so how do we recover, restore this beautiful ancient practice of loving our neighbor well in this particular moment? This is really an important issue, not only because it's our heritage, but because it is needed today. We live in a society where we have all these technologies that enable us to connect to each other, but we are living in one of the loneliest ages in history where people live alone and die alone. I looked up this week getting ready for this sermon on, on the internet, um, people dying alone, and there's these just mind-boggling numbers of stories of people who are dead in their apartment for one woman three years and nobody even knew. How is that possible today with all of our wealth, with all of our technologies of connection? It's complicated, I know. Part of it has to do with our families. Part of it has to do with the way we order our time. Part of it has to do with the infrastructure of our cities and our neighborhoods. And, but people have this profound sense today of being detached from one another and wanting to attach. And of course, so many of our relationships today are mediated through technology, which has this kind of barriering quality. It produces barriers to keep us from one another. Now, 
in our society, in, in the face of this epidemic of loneliness, it seems to me there are two primary attempts at dealing with loneliness, attempts at forging communities of connection. And, and, and both of them are incomplete. In the church, we need to see these kind of parodies of community so that we can recognize them and seek to offer something in their place. One of them is what you might call an individualist approach to community, an individualist approach. It might seem like a contradiction in terms, individualist and community, but it's not, it's real. We see it every day. Here's, here's what happens. In this approach to community, the, the idea is that the group exists for me. Or in kind of psychological language, the community is for self-actualization. The community is the place where I can secure my identity, meet my needs, realize my hopes. In other words, the community is not about others. It's about me. It's about the self. And we see this. Many of us see this. I do this. I, some of you do. I mean, I could call you out. I've watched you, but not all of you. We do this with church, don't we? This individualist approach where I'm a part of a community for the sake of me, for the sake of my needs. Another kind of parody of community that's going on in our culture right now, perversion of community, is what we might call the tribal approach to community. In this idea, community is fundamentally about those who are like us. This is where we build a community around race or class or cultural perspectives. So it might be political tribes or racial tribes or regional tribes or even religious tribes, right? Unfortunately, too many churches over the past seven years have become enclaves of political parties. So you've got democratic churches and you've got Republican churches. And unfortunately, some of us left the last several presidential elections no longer energized by worshiping in churches with people who have different bumper stickers. That's not community. That's a tribe. It's an echo chamber where we get along with people who, who think like us and look like us and talk like us and act like us, and we have no room for any other person or any other experience. And it feels like community if you're on the inside. And that's the problem. That's why it's not real community. Because in this type of group, those who are like us are in, but those who are not like us are out. And this inevitably leads to violence. Whether it's Facebook rhetorical violence, you're so stupid. Your hero's so dumb. Your leader's so mean. The kind of violence that shows up in our jokes we tell about people in the other tribes. Or physical violence or economic violence. This is the source of so much of our collective racial, economic, and political misery. This is not community. It's a perversion of community. So we should not be afraid right now 
Because a great need of our age is like a softball pitch to the church. It's, it's a, the, a great need of our age. Our age desperately needs community and answer to this question. How are we supposed to love other human beings? And the church is the answer. Remember, the God that we worship is a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling together in a community of eternal love. And this community of Father, Son, and Spirit is love right at the core. We believe that love is at the core of reality. We serve a triune God. And this community of the love of God expresses itself through hospitality, ultimately in the cross. And the cross is ultimately an act of hospitality. This is what we should think of the cross as. This is why I love the art on the front of the worship guide. The cross is like this slash of light in utter darkness. Imagine walking down the darkest alley on the darkest night all alone. Imagine a door cracks open and the slash of light pierces the alley. That act of hospitality, that's what the cross is. At its very core, the cross represents an opening up of God's very self to the world that has closed itself off from the divine embrace. The cross makes space in a world that says, oh no, I'm full. Christ's death and resurrection is the ultimate expression of the love of God in the act of hospitality. Christ made space for us on the cross and the proper response to that act of hospitality is to become people who offer hospitality. Because Christ opened his nail-pierced hands to friend and foe alike. His disciples must take on that same posture in all of our interactions with all of our neighbors, those we respect and those we don't respect, those we like and those we don't like, those who are friends and those who are foes. It is for the church that says they are disciples of the hospitable one to become the community in the loneliness of this age that is offering hospitality. Community is at the heart of the Christian vision, a community that manifests itself in hospitality. And we can only bear witness to a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit when we live in community with acts of hospitality. If we're not doing that, what God are we bearing witness to? Not the triune God. Now, how are we going to do this? How are we going to actually, in practical and concrete ways, offer a community of love through acts of hospitality to our world? Well, I think there's two things in particular that the church needs to emphasize if we are going to do this. Number one, we need to reestablish households as schools of love. And number two, we need to reestablish hospitality as the expression of love. Let me talk about both of these. Number one, if we're going to be a missionary community in this age, 
we have to reestablish households as schools of love because love is learned. Whether you're reading Nicholas Sparks or you're reading ancient Greek mythology with Cupid, it's wrong. Love is not a force that strikes you in a moment of inspiration. Love is a thing you learn through practice. And if we're going to learn love, we have to devote ourselves to living in households where we are shaping our very life together as a school of love. And I'm stealing this language from St. Bernard, Bernard of Clairvaux. That's what he called the household. Now, these can be households with families. They can be households with friends. They can be households of both. It doesn't matter. But the Christian church needs to establish households in every city of this world where human beings are learning to love. This is what Deuteronomy 6 says. Here is the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Yeah, but if you're really going to live that out, the household has to become the school of love. This is Romans chapter 12, our New Testament reading. These households in the church, they need to be places where we are daily living out practices of mind and heart and body and speech and friendship and service. We have to reestablish the household, not simply as a refuge from the world, but as a school of love for the world. Because only when we do this, only when we understand that love can only be learned Only then can we overcome the individualism that is like the um, Achilles heel of this age. The household is the answer to the individualism that is the idol of American life. We need to begin to think of our households as a group of people living together for the purposes of love. Not by accident or not just because it's the way biology worked out. So again, whether they are made up of family members or groups of friends or some combination thereof, the households of a missionary church are schools of love where we are shaped by daily habits sustained over time. Habits of prayer and fellowship and domestic duties and rest, habits that help us grow in love for God and others. You see, in the Bible, the nuclear family is not the organizing unit for faith. The household is. And and in America, because of the idol of the nuclear family, the LGBTQ community, and singles, the divorced, the orphaned, and the widowed are screwed. And what we've got to reestablish is a vision for households as a school of love. And so whether it's a group of friends from college living together or a group of friends who move to a city in order to start their careers and launch into life together, we need to see that a household is the school of love. And if you take that place where you live and you use it for some other purpose, you're in a world of trouble. We need to be deliberate about where we live, with whom we live, and for what purpose. Now, the key here is what are you aiming at in that place where you live? 
Are you aiming at the inward journey of self-knowledge or the journey of skill development for the sake of effectiveness? Both of those are good, but aim at the hardest work, the truest goal. The goal is to learn how to love. So in this age of loneliness where people are longing for true community, a missionary church, a church that is faithful to God and faithful to its city, this is a church that reestablishes households as schools of love. And second, we need to reestablish hospitality as the expression of love. We have to reprioritize hospitality as the extension of love because the love that we have is not just for our household. It's not just for ourselves. The love that we grow in our households, we grow that love for God and neighbor. And because of this, the work of the church in the world is not the work of excluding our neighbor, but embracing our neighbor through acts of hospitality. Think, think about how powerful this is in our city today. Think about your open door. Think about your warm welcome. Think about the holiness of pulling up that extra chair, setting out that extra plate, refilling that glass one more time, going and finding fresh linens and putting them on the bed. That is holy. It's holy. That is the work of hospitality. And I cannot imagine a more powerful protest against the tribal impulse of our age than acts of hospitality for people we disagree with who are different than us. Remember, our faith is one that is premised on the assumption that while we were strangers and enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus came and he prepared a meal for us while we were his enemies. And that meal was himself. And he welcomed us into his life. And he says, I've prepared a place for you. And the way that we tell that gospel story is by performing that gospel story. Left to our own devices, who would want to do this? I can think of a hundred reasons not to invite some people, not to open my heart and my door to them, but I can think of a giant reason that I should. Let's encourage each other. Let's figure out how to do this again in a new moment of time. It's different than our forebearers. How can we reestablish our households and schools of love and hospitality as the expression of love? How can we move from a posture of hostility to those who won the culture war to a posture of hospitality to them? How can we become the kinds of people who instead of being immersed in ourselves and only in our family, we literally open the door and we invite and we plan and we prepare meals and we gather around our tables with those we disagree with, with those who voted different than us, with those who are enacting policies and procedures that we think are harmful. This is what a missionary church does. Now, don't get me wrong. 
This is happening in our church. It's happening in spades. I'm not, I'm not saying anything that so many of you aren't doing. There are so many examples of this going on in our church. People who say that we're going to move into that neighborhood for this purpose. We're going to build our lives in this neighborhood. We're going to welcome our neighbor's kids and we're going to keep an eye out for them. And we're going to work in our school system and we're going to do all of these things. This is about people who live in a place on purpose for the sake of caring for their neighbors and helping their neighbors, whatever their neighbor's views are, helping their neighbors thrive. And it's a beautiful image, isn't it? It's a way that we express our lives with God. Because remember, it is the love of neighbor and the love of God that can't be separated when you ask Jesus what is the thing he requires of us. Now, one final point, and this is as much for me and my wife um, as it is for you people. I feel guilty after saying all of that. I'm just like thinking of all the ways I haven't, I haven't done it lately very well. I've been getting ready for this sermon for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I've been like, holy cow, how am I going to say this stuff? I just feel overwhelmed by it. Overwhelmed by the need, overwhelmed by my failings, overwhelmed by my limitations. This, this call can be overwhelming. So here's um, the salve I've felt in my own heart. Two things. Number one is Psalm 103. Um, a psalm that I memorized 30 years ago. It has this line right in the middle of it. He remembers that we're made from the dust. You know, I look up and I see the example of Jesus in the church and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you know that I'm dust. <laughs> I'm like dirt. Like I, I have these limitations. You, you know, we go through these seasons where all you can do is make it to the end of the day. You know, we have these mental struggles and illnesses and sufferings and, and um, we, we don't have anything left. And, and when I think about Psalm 103, he remembers we're made from the dust. It helps me remember it's okay to have boundaries. That doors not only have hinges, they also have locks. I stole that from Edith Schaefer. Because in order to give ourselves away to someone, we have to have healthy boundaries. We have to know what we have to give and when we don't have anything to give. And I think one of the reasons we're not hospitable is because we lack the self-knowledge of knowing the kind of resources that we have and don't have. Here's when you open the door. Here's when you close the door. Here's when you need to stop. That's been the first salve for my conscience as I try to sit with this. The second salve for my conscience is this. Yeah, Christ is my example. The cross is the ultimate act of hospitality. But more than an example, he's my redeemer. And if him as my redeemer is not bigger than him as my example, then I get crushed under the weight of not living up. Christ is, is a redeemer. The cross is the act of divine hospitality, and I do need to be hospitable. But if I only see it as an example for me to follow and not as the act that redeems me, then all I see in the face of Jesus is judgment. 
but no mortal can bear the weight of the cross. No one could pay the full cost of discipleship. The weight is just too much. The cost is just too high. It's only when we know and experience Jesus as our redeemer that we can bear to strain toward him as our example. He's the one whose suffering covers my shortcomings. And, my, and so the one I'm looking at as my example that I'm trying to imitate is looking back at me as my redeemer. Not as the one who's like, haven't you learned by now, Aubrey? Surely you can do better than this. We need to remember that he is our savior. His spirit fulfills the law of God in us. And then when that is the frame, we can press forward in following him as an example. And and on our own, we could never fulfill this. The chaos and complexity of this age is just too much. The complexity of becoming a missionary church is just too much. We have to first understand that our root need is for a mystical union, a living communion with Jesus Christ, this intimate friendship and indwelling with Jesus is the foundation of the imitation of Jesus. So if you are feeling feeling this call to be a missionary church, as a burden too heavy to bear. Remember, the gospel is not law, it's good news. Jesus came not to judge, but to save. And this gospel has welled up from God's generous, gratuitous grace, his rich love, and it does not kill, it makes alive. And so as we seek to be a missionary church, we can know that Christ does not walk, simply walk in front of us as the example. He walks beside us. So the paralyzing sense of being overwhelmed by the size and complexity of the call to love and hospitality must be challenged by the gospel message that it is Christ who saves. It's Christ who saves us in our households and our neighbors. It's Christ who saves. Let's pray.